Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Patrick McEwen. Patrick McEwen is a world-renowned author and breathing practitioner. He was educated at Trinity College in Dublin before completing his clinical training in the Buteco Breathing Method at the Buteco Clinic, Moscow, Russia. This training was accredited by Professor Konstantin Buteco. In a career spanning 15 years, Patrick has also become a best-selling author and expert on the topic of optimal breathing for improved health, well-being and fitness. Patrick was also recently made a Fellow of the Royal Society of Biology in the UK for his contribution to our understanding of breathing. When he is not working in his home in the west of Ireland, Patrick travels extensively in Europe, the USA and Australia, teaching and training athletes and coaches in the Oxygen Advantage program. He delivers workshops and speaks at conferences worldwide. Since 2015, Patrick has been training Olympic athletes as well as NFL and soccer players. Patrick's message is simple. How you breathe at rest and during exercise will affect your overall performance. Learn to breathe correctly and see immediate results in your training. I had such a fantastic time speaking with Patrick. His work has been a huge influence on me and I strongly believe proper breathing is the foundation upon which health is built. To give a quick head start on what we discuss, I'd like to point out that the type of breathing that we're talking about for optimal health is nasal breathing. This is characterized by light, slow and deep breathing whilst engaging the diaphragm and with your tongue on the roof of your mouth behind your front teeth. Hopefully this sets the scene for our conversation. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for coming to speak with me, Patrick. Uh, I've been a huge fan for a really long time. Uh, I'd love to just get a bit of a background on how you got so interested in breathing and using breathing to uh, improve health. Yeah, uh, it's great to talk to you, Cameron. I suppose I just fell into it and it was pure accident. It's it's not an occupation stream that you would have would have been recommended when you're, you're leaving high school or going into university, et cetera, because it's not an occupation that's typically taught in university anyway. Um, I found it because of my own health issues and I put it into practice myself and it made, uh, I would have to say, a monumental difference in my quality of life, in my sleep, in my asthma, in my clarity of mind, concentration, focus, dealing with stress. And... It was that really that propelled me because nobody was really talking about this back 20 years ago. And I just felt that I couldn't be the only one having sleep issues and poor concentration and poor focus. And, you know, my main focus originally then was after I trained was to work with people with asthma. And I did that for a few years. And I still, of course, work with people with asthma. But then after a few years, then we started working with asthma and sleep and then asthma, sleep and anxiety. And then asthma, sleep, anxiety, and sports performance. So it's kind of evolved, you know. It's been a great journey. It's been a very interesting one. That's awesome. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty about all of those different things that you mentioned, um, I thought it would be great if we could just cover what it means to breathe correctly and what it means to breathe incorrectly. So could you just yep. talk through what the characteristics of those are? Yeah, well, number one, mouth breathing is not for breathing. The mouth is not for breathing. So mouth breathing doesn't serve any purpose. And when you breathe through an open mouth, you're more likely to activate the body's sympathetic response or fight or flight response because mouth breathing typically involves a faster breathing pattern and more upper chest. And 
our ancestors were not mouth breeders. They were nasal breeders. It is true that we can breathe through the mouth, but that should be seen only in terms of an emergency. Now, I'm not saying that most human beings are going around with their mouth open, but there are a select few that will have their mouth open chronically. And um, many human beings, when they do physical exercise, the mouth is open. About 50% of them sleep with their mouth open. Mouth open during sleep, one is more likely to, to wake up feeling tired. Mouth open during physical exercise doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because it's reducing oxygen uptake in the, in the blood. It's reducing oxygen delivery. You're not harnessing optimal movement of the diaphragm. The recovery isn't going to be as good. So what is normal breathing? What is functional breathing patterns? It's in and out through the nose. It's driven by the diaphragm breathing muscle. It's slow, it's light, it's regular, and it has a natural pause on the exhalation. And you can assess somebody's breathing patterns by simply measuring their breath hold time. So we use the bolt score or the control pause from the Buteco method. And this involves just a person sitting down for about five minutes or so with normal breathing patterns. And then they take a breath in and out through their nose, just a normal breath in through the nose and a normal exhalation, pinch their nose with their fingers and time it in seconds until they feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of the breathing muscles, and then to let go. And it's the length of time that it takes until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. That's your score. And if your score is less than 25 seconds, it indicates dysfunctional breathing patterns. Now, if you're hovering around 22 seconds, yeah, you're fairly close to it. Um, but if you're down at around 10 seconds or 12 seconds or 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, your breathing is typically faster. Your breathing is more likely to be upper chest. Um, if you're down at 10 seconds and below, you're going to feel air hunger. You just feel that you cannot take a satisfying breath. And because of your faster breathing pattern and upper chest breathing and possibly mouth breathing and irregular breathing, you're going to have symptoms as a result of that. You know, cold hands and feet can be a very common symptom. Frequent yawning and frequent sighing. The feeling that one isn't getting enough air, waking up tired. And there's many symptoms that can be related to breathing pattern disorders, anxiety and panic disorder, increased breathlessness during physical exercise, pain, increased pain, you know. So I suppose Claude Lum was a chest physician back in the 1970s, and he said that chronic hyperventilation, which is the most common form of breathing pattern disorder, it can affect any organ or system to different degrees. And really, when we think of breathing, we should give breathing credence that breathing has got three dimensions to it. When researchers are looking at breathing, they look at breathing from a biochemical point of view, which is focusing on carbon dioxide in the blood. They're looking at breathing from a biomechanical point of view, which is referring to whether the person is breathing high using the upper chest or breathing low using the diaphragm. And they look at breathing from a psychophysiological point of view. So if it makes sense that researchers look at breathing from three dimensions, why, when breathing instructors work with their students, why are they only focusing on one dimension? And I think that's a, it's a very valid question because we need to focus, we need to realize that the power of breathing is not just simply taking that full big breath. And there's ideas out there that the more air you breathe, the better. That's simply not the case. You know, I was one of those hard breathers. You'd notice my breathing, I was a mouth breather. And I, was a, I wasn't in a good space at all. Um, in terms of more highly strung. 
My pulse rate when I was in my early 20s, I remember measuring it at one point during rest was 80 beats per minute, which can indicate just where I was metabolically. Um, sucking asthma inhalers all day long, waking up with feeling lousy in the morning and required to go into school and university and do well in exams. You know, you can do well in exams if you're in that state, but I tell you one thing, it takes a lot of work and there's an easier way to do it. And this is a problem that's affecting about 75% of the population with anxiety and panic disorder, but it's overlooked because the healthcare professionals that are mainly dealing with this population, anxiety and panic disorder, don't get trained in functional breathing patterns and they don't understand the physiology of breathing. They don't understand in the main carbon dioxide, its relationship to the release of oxygen, feeling that suffocation can be generated because of an increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide, which of course can be reduced. The impact that sleep is having on anxiety and states of mind and the impact of breathing is having on sleep. So I suppose, Cameron, you know, you're a nutritionist and you're looking outside of the box of your discipline and that's great, but not all people do that. We are all guilty of staying in our own little box and probably I'm guilty of it too, because that's just the way it is. You know, in human beings, we can be resistant to change, but we have to realize that the human body is just too complex and different functions are influencing each other. We cannot isolate simply the human body to be one part without looking at the impact that how one function is, is affecting the other, the bi-directional relationships between those. Yeah, that's, um, that was a, a great little uh, introduction to how impactful breathing is on, on health and illness. And um, just as a, as a note, you know, the doctors that I work with, the first thing they do is get the patient's control pause score. Great. And um, they, they've done your training uh, and, uh, they they say to me, every, well, my sickest patients always have under 15 second bolt scores. Uh, always. It's always the first thing that they'll check. And I guess it's interesting because breathing is something we simply just don't really think about on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, whether we breathe through our mouth or breathe through our nose, you know, most people would go, well, it's, it's all breath. It's all coming in. What's the difference? Um, and I guess that makes me wonder how big is the problem that we're facing? How many people are actually breathing in a way that's contributing to them developing uh, illnesses or even diseases? Well, if you look at the asthma population alone and Australia, New Zealand, UK and Ireland have the biggest or the, the, the highest instance of asthma in the world, typically about eight, 8% 8 of the population. Now, if you were to add up the populations there and take 8%, all of those people can be changed. All of those people can get a lot of improvement to their condition as a result of doing breathing exercises. And it doesn't get addressed. And even in the hospitals, it doesn't get addressed because what I mean by it's not just enough just to focus on the diaphragm. We have to teach people with asthma to breathe through the nose, but to reduce the volume of air that they are breathing. They very often breathe hard and fast. And the hard and fast breathing is causing the airways to constrict. And we have to, you know, I suppose it could be easy for a healthcare professional to say that, well, the person with asthma is feeling suffocated because their airways are narrow. 
And as a result of airway narrowing, they're more likely to breathe harder and faster. That's true. But we also need to recognize that the harder and faster breathing is feeding back into the condition. So let's look at the sleep disorder population, people with insomnia, snoring and sleep apnea, people with upper airway resistance syndrome. This affects about 15% of the childhood population and about 30 to 50%, well, maybe 30 to 40% of the male population. And it gets worse as we get older. And for females, it's typically maybe about 10% of females under 50 years of age. And it increases 200 to 300% post-menopause. Now, sleep apnea, for example, is a relatively common condition. Most people are undiagnosed. And look at the impact that this is having on the cardiovascular system, on dementia, on cancer, on fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and also stress levels. Because if you have obstructive sleep apnea, and of course, if it's untreated, you're more likely to have reduced vagal tone. You're more likely to be in that stress response. And then if we look at the anxiety and panic disorder population, and I don't have a statistic of many people suffer from anxiety or panic disorder, 75% of that population have dysfunctional breathing patterns, and that's been overlooked. And then if we look at the childhood population, between 25 and 50% of studied children persistently mouth-breathe. And mouth-breathing is a hallmarker for poor sleep quality in a child. There was a study carried out by Karen Bonnock that was published in Pediatrics in 2012, the journal. She looked at 11,000 children in the British town of Stratford-upon-Avon, and she tracked their progress over, I think it was four years or six years. So it was a longitudinal study with a decent population. And her conclusion was that if children had sleep disorder breathing by five years of age, and if it was untreated, these kids had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. And in that paper, you will read that Deep sleep is vital for the development of the child's brain. And if the child doesn't get that deep sleep, if they are having light sleep or sleep disruption or sleep fragmentation, it affects the development of the brain and the changes are lifelong. Now, then if we consider the impact of mouth breathing on craniofacial growth, and again, this has been overlooked, unfortunately, by most of the professions, except for a select number of dentists, orthodontists, medical doctors, speech and language pathology, and all myofunctional therapists. That if a child is having the mouth open and the tongue is not going to be resting in the roof of the mouth, the tongue is necessary for the development of the face because when the mouth is closed and the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, the pressure exerted by the tongue can help to direct the growth of the face forward to help open up the airway. I was a mouth breathing kid. My jaws are set back. My airway is compromised. I had a very, very high narrow palate, nasal cavities in fringe. So anatomically, I would never have been a sporting superstar, put it that way. Um, you know, you don't reach your full potential. No child is going to reach their full potential if they don't have an adequate airway. So I think this is crying out for attention. And positively, there has been a huge awareness in the last three years. It really has been amazing. And it has been driven from the grassroots upwards. And it has also been driven by, for example, James Nestor's book, Brett. Because a lot of what James has talked about is the stuff that we've been talking about for 20 years. But it's great to get a journalist in there to investigate it and to put it out there. And because, of course, 
I can talk about it, but because I work in the profession, I might, I'm, you know, it's likely I'm going to have a bias because that's the way it is. But with James, he's looking at it from a non-biased point of view and exploring the importance of nose breathing and also light breathing and slow breathing and low breathing. It's really time we get it out there. You know, can you imagine the social and economic costs because this has been overlooked? All of those people who are going into a dental surgery today, all of the men who are going in with sleep, yeah, the dentist is looking into the mouth and the dentist is so uniquely positioned to identify the risk factors of obstructive sleep apnea. Scalloping of the tongue, for example, high upper palate, jaws that are set back, trauma to the upper airways. But yet the dentist in the most case is not advising their patient that they have a risk of sleep apnea. Why? Why is this not happening? And it's not that breathing is new. You know, all of this stuff has been around for a hundred years. It's been documented for children that back in 1909, the child with the mouth open in class was unattentive in school. I was that kid. And I left school at 14 years of age, never to go back to school. I only wrote about it the first time I wrote about it in the book Atomic Focus because people would judge me. You know, I left school at 14. Now, life took its own path and I went back to school. I went back to school at 15. I got into one of the best universities in Ireland. But I have to say, I took a lot of toil. And I can remember my teenage years were reduced to simply studying because, you know, if you have fatigue and if you don't have the ability, if you, like I was stuck in my head, poor energy levels. And, you know, I could be looking at a page, but my attention wasn't on the page. So by the time I got to the bottom of the page, I wouldn't have remembered any of the text and I'd have to start off again. And children, you can imagine the pressures now on children and teenagers and university students to do well academically. But nobody is looking at these kids sleep. And it's not enough just to wear blue light filter glasses. It's not enough just to have an airy bedroom and to avoid alcohol and don't be eating late at night and all of this stuff. All of that stuff is excellent. But if you have your mouth open with your tongue at a low resting posture, with your jaw set back, narrowed airway, breathing harder and faster, you're more likely to have insomnia, you're more likely to have snoring, and you're more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. You are not going to reach your full potential. You are not going to reach flow states. And also the whole mental health industry, they need to start speaking to sleep and looking at the function of sleep in terms of getting a calmness and quietness of the mind. And they need to look at breathing from a biochemical point of view, especially. Now, of course, you know, when we say, if somebody comes into me with panic disorder, Typically, what, what I will typically see is, you know, I'll see faster breathing and upper chest breathing, and the person might have irregular breathing patterns. Now, it's not everybody, you know, but it's a large cohort. And we start off with very easy breath hold exercises just to help to reduce the person's sensitivity towards carbon dioxide and to improve their tolerance of CO2. I also use small breath holds to help stimulate the vagus nerve. Because when I can stimulate the vagus nerve or when the individual stimulates the vagus nerve, it can activate the body's relaxation response or at least bring a better balance in the autonomic nervous system. And then we work with light breathing in light and slow breathing patterns to change the behavior of their breathing from upper chest and fast breathing to light, slow and low. And then we bring in cadence breathing or resonance frequency breathing again to stimulate the vagus nerve to bring a better balance in the autonomic nervous system. We look at their sleep. And even by exposing the person to air hunger. So some of the exercises we have, 
Like I remember 20 years ago, 20 odd years ago, I was practicing breathing less hair and I was able to increase the temperature of my fingers. I always had cold hands and cold feet. I never realized that the 70,000 70, miles of blood vessels in the human body are impacted by how you breathe. And if you have a habit of breathing a little bit faster and a little bit harder, you can cause too much carbon dioxide to be removed from the blood through the lungs. And carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas. If you are breathing too much air and getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, your blood vessels constrict. So it's ironic. The person who was breathing the hardest and the fastest has reduced blood flow and you reduced oxygen delivery. So even by having the person with panic disorder and anxiety, gently soften their breathing and give them a controlled dose of air hunger. So I deliberately give them a teaspoon of air hunger to desensitize their body's reaction towards the feeling of suffocation. Because many people with panic disorder, and it's not them all, but many people have a very strong reaction to the feeling of suffocation. And it's the feeling of suffocation that's self-perpetuating in their panic disorder. It's not the person's breathing when they confront a difficult situation that's the problem. It's their everyday breathing pattern. It's how are they breathing during sleep? How are they breathing during rest? How are they breathing during physical exercise? What is their control pause? What is their bold score? And if they have a habit of breathing pause during rest and physical exercise and sleep, um, they're going to be less resilient when it comes to a difficult situation. So I suppose, you know, we're looking to change states. We're looking to affect the autonomic nervous system blood circulation, oxygen uptake, oxygen delivery, to improve optimal use of the diaphragm because of the, the role of the diaphragm in the emotions. And also, you know, in your world, diaphragmatic breathing is very important for massaging the internal organs, for the lymphatic system. Light breathing is very important to help improve blood flow and oxygen delivery in the gastro gastrointestinal tract. And also the autonomic nervous system. If you have an individual who's very much in a sympathetic, increased sympathetic drive, is that going to impact their food consumption? And also, is it going to impact conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera? So it really does. Breathing can tie in and, you know, it can affect, as I said, I would say most of the major functions of the human body can be impacted by your breathing just by virtue of the influence it has on the autonomic nervous system, your blood circulation, your oxygen delivery, your sleep. I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said. That was that was an absolutely brilliant little, um, you know, segue into um, why lighter, slower, and deeper breathing is so important for the body. And you stress that quite a bit in in the new book, The Breathing Cure. Um, I think a lot of people might struggle with the idea that breathing less is actually helping your um, gas exchange um, more than it would if you breathed more. So I was just wondering if you could give a short but um, you know concise explanation about how light, slow and deep breathing helps to oxygenate your cells more efficiently and to help calm the nervous system in a way where you get a good sympathetic to parasympathetic balance. The carbon dioxide in your blood is influenced primarily by the volume of air that you breathe. And the volume of air that you breathe is the respiratory rate. 
So the number of breaths per minute that you take multiplied by the tidal volume, which is the volume of air drawn into the body in one breath. And that gives you minute ventilation. A normal minute ventilation during rest is about four to six liters. But if I use the example of the Matter Hospital trial in Brisbane that was carried back in 1995, looking at 40 individuals with asthma, their, their everyday breathing was that they were breathing 14 liters of air per minute. Their minute ventilation was two to three times more than what was required. Now, if one is breathing a faster respiratory rate and or deeper, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. Because as you breathe hard, you remove carbon dioxide from the lungs. And it's the pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs that determines the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. So the volume of air that you breathe is going to determine under normal circumstances, the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. The body needs a pressure of carbon dioxide of 40 millimeters of mercury. And if we are breathing too hard and we are getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, blood vessels constrict. And it's known since the 1980s that every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. And it's also known that all it takes is 30 to 60 minutes of hard breathing to lower the CO2 in the blood by half. So if I asked an individual to breathe hard, full, big breaths for one minute, I can reduce their CO2 in the blood by half, and this will reduce oxygen, sorry, this will reduce blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. Now, it's not just the blood circulation that's impacted by how hard you breathe. It's also delivery of oxygen. So when we take a breath of air into the lungs and oxygen transfers from the lungs into the blood, 98.5% of oxygen in the blood is carried bound by hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is a protein within the red blood cell. One and a half percent of oxygen is carried dissolved directly in the plasma. So you can imagine that hemoglobin, that this protein is carrying oxygen throughout the body. But how do we get hemoglobin to release oxygen to the tissues and organs. Carbon dioxide is one of those factors. Now there are others, increased body temperature, etc. But if we are breathing too much air and getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood to the lungs, blood pH increases. And as a result, hemoglobin holds onto oxygen more readily. So the harder we breathe, the more the blood vessels constrict, and we also have a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and there's reduced oxygen delivery throughout the body. Now, another aspect then is if we have a low control pause and if we are breathing harder and faster, and it's especially the exhalation, it's not the inhalation. It's not the speed of the inhalation doesn't matter all that much. It's the speed of the exhalation. But if you have a low control pause, you typically have a faster respiratory rate. So you are breathing in fast and you are breathing out fast. And when we persistently breathe out fast during rest, we're activating a stress response or we're simply not activating the body's relaxation response because to bring the body into relaxation, we need to have a slow and relaxed exhalation. We have to think of it that the brain is continuously monitoring breathing and the feedback from the body up to the brain. So when we breathe out fast, the brain interprets that the body is under threat. And all the brain wants to do is to protect the body, to get the body out of that environment. So how many people are breathing out fast all the time, all day long, 
and they're in that constant stress response. And if they understood that, if you just took a soft breath in through your nose and a relaxed and a prolonged exhalation, you have to stimulate the vagus nerve, which secretes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which causes a slowing of the heart. And the brain interprets then that the body is safe. Because I suppose it's throughout our evolution, whenever we were in a difficult situation or a challenging situation, we never had a relaxed exhalation. We always had a fast exhalation. And if we get into a difficult situation today, we respond with that, that you know, evolutionary trait, that primordial characteristic of difficult situation, we typically respond as human beings with faster and harder breathing. But that's when the brain recognizes that the body is under threat. So the boss might give out and we go into that faster and harder breathing pattern and we're putting in, put into that fight or flight response. And instead, I think it would be tremendous if the education system not just teach us about geography and history and math and all of those subjects, but to teach us how to deal with stress, to teach us also how to deal with finance. And I know that's a, a totally different topic, but it's really about upskilling children to be able to deal with the stresses of daily life. And it's so much better, you know, because even just to, to have curriculum, that you can change your states by changing your breathing patterns. Now, I remember I was listening to, I wrote it in the book, I have another book called Atomic Focus, and I put in a section on it, just a page. Um, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, is a, he's a doctor here in the UK. Well, I'm in Ireland, but he's over in the UK. And he was, he was interviewing a brain surgeon. And just, I thought it was really interesting. The brain surgeon says, he says, when I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. And of course, the brain surgeon knows that. But why doesn't everybody else know about it? Why doesn't the kid in school? Why doesn't the university student going in to do the exams, that if they have that faster breathing and if they're hyperventilating going into the exams, they're not going to do, perform so well? Why doesn't the business person know about it? The person in the office, the corporation, police, military. Military do breathing exercises and they typically do box breathing to bring about that balance of the autonomic nervous system. Because if you hyperventilate, your brain wants to get you to hell out of there. And you can imagine going in to sit an exam and you, all your body wants to do is get out of there. It's not a time for composed and planning and decision-making. And it's not a time for, you know, answering an exam, regurgitating information, et cetera. There was a recent study that was done in 2018 or 2019 in Belgium, and they looked at, I think, 51 business students, and they put them through various stressors. They divided them up into two groups, and they had one group do slow breathing, and they had another group do sham, nothing at all, pretty much. And then they exposed them to a stressor. The individuals who spent two minutes doing slow breathing, performed better with less stress. That's all it can take to change states, two minutes. So Cameron, I think, you know, in terms of, from my own point of view, running a business, um, you know, I'm 48 years of age and I've had the benefit of being able to apply breathing exercises on a personal level for 20 plus years. It is totally life-changing. And I have to say, I'm not sure what I would have done without them. And maybe I'm unique, but I don't think I am. 
I think it's important that all people, especially those people who are vulnerable to stress and those people who are vulnerable to asthma and panic disorder and anxiety and perfectionist tendencies and who are feeling you know, that they are in a difficult situation. The human body, we can't cope with long-term stress. We are not designed to cope with long-term stress. It causes inflammation and it causes us to be sick. And many of the conditions that we experience, chronic conditions, can stem back to long-term stress. But if we do have a difficult situation, such as being unable to pay a mortgage or being in a, a workplace environment where the, the corporation is continuously pushing and pushing and pushing the employee and the employee is 100 or 200 emails per day to answer on top of a workload, you know, the employee needs to be able to take some resolve and to take some time out and to counter the physiological demands on their body. Because, you know, if you don't, burnout is the, is the may, maybe burnout is the, the likely scenario. You know, so it's, yeah, I think it's it's something, it's a skill that we should learn in school. And I would put it down that it's 10 times more important than history and geography. You can learn that at any time. Um, but dealing with stress, that should be number one. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a section in the book where you quote a paper where the authors said that full-time nasal breathing is the single most important objective in securing adequate craniofacial and airway development in children. And to me, what I, what I think we're seeing is uh, an epidemic of children that are growing up that are not capable of breathing in a way that's going to help them manage stress, uh, stave off allergies, um, you know, create nitric oxide through their nose and prevent themselves from getting sick. And, you know, it seems to me that there is a growing epidemic of um, changes in childhood behavior as well. So I guess one of the things that I've been thinking is, is there a link between the change in childhood behavior and the way in which children are, uh, children's faces are developing in a way that's uh, preventing them from being able to breathe in a way that's healthy? Yes. Children with ADHD, um, sleep disorder breathing is a significant contributory factor to it. And if the mouth is open and the airways haven't developed normally, the child is more risk, greater risk of having sleep disorder breathing, including snoring. No child should snore. You know, snoring, we often think that snoring is normal for an adult. It's just it's not as bad for an adult as it is for a child. It's not good for a child. There's an orthodontist in Sydney in Randwick called Dr. Derek Mahoney. And he's spent a number of decades looking at exactly this field. And he has a team of ear, nose and throat surgeons. And, you know, he's got a big team around him. And I know he's been studying. I don't know if his PhD has been, um, if it's been published yet, looking at it specifically this in Australia. I'm assuming it's Australian kids because he's based there. And looking at the impact, as far as I know, on ADHD, et cetera. But it stems back anyway. Karen Bonnock has a study on it, the 11,000 British children. And she talks about children with ADHD, that these, this condition is impacted by sleep disorders. Dr. Stephen Sheldon as well, if I have his name correctly. Um, I remember being at different conferences and he would stand up and he'd say, there's no such thing as ADHD. The problem is poor sleep. So then we have to ask, why does the child have poor sleep? Well, if you don't have a good airway, you're not likely to have good sleep. 
There's other orthodontists also that know about this. Um, I think Sharon Moore, I think her name is, I should know her name off, off by heart, but uh, she wrote a book. She's an Australian, I think she's a speech and language pathologist. And she wrote a book called Sleep Wrecked Kids. So Sleep Wrecked Kids, specifically all of those issues. So, you know, it's out there. But I suppose most parents won't be aware of it, um, except for the likes of podcasts like this, which are a great avenue to get the information there. And most dentists, unfortunately, aren't aware of it either. Because the dentist isn't taught about breathing and sleep in dental school. So the only dentists and orthodontists who understand about the airway and the impact of mouth breathing on craniofacial development are those dentists who did further study after their university. And that's another question, you know. Like there's a couple of questions always that are at the top of my mind. Why doesn't the dental in, why doesn't the dental university consider sleep? Because it should be a part of dentistry, because the dentist, as I said at the start, is in such a unique position to spot the risk factors. And this is more than just ADHD. There was a paper published in 2012 um, in one of the European journals, and it was the co-author by Dr. Christian Gimeno. And the paper is looking at sudden infant death syndrome in young infants. And the name of the paper is, it was published in the European Journal of Pediatrics in April of 2012. The name of the paper is Death, Nasomaxillary Complex and Sleep in Young Children. This study looks at seven infants who died as a result of sudden infant death syndrome. And the history revealed presence of chronic indicators of abnormal sleep in all cases prior to death. All of these young infants who died, they had abnormal sleep prior to death. They had a history of an acute, often mild rhinitis just preceding death in several. I'm reading it off the paper here. Four children, including three infants, were usually sleeping in a prone position. Autopsy demonstrated variable enlargement of the upper airway, soft tissues in all cases, and in all cases, this is the crux, there were features consistent with a narrow, small nasomaxillary complex with or without mandibular retroposition. All children were concluded to have died of hypoxia during sleep. Our obstructive sleep apnea children presented similar complaints and similar facial features. Anatomic risk factors for a normal, sorry, I'm gonna read off the paper again. Anatomic risk factors for a narrow upper airway can be determined early in life, and these traits are often genetic. Their presence should lead to greater attention to sleep-related complaints that may be present very early in life and indicate impairment of well-being and presence of sleep disruption. Further investigation should be performed to understand the role of the upper airway infection in the setting of anatomically small airway in apparently abrupt death of infants and toddlers. Now, can you imagine a scenario that any parent goes through to that experience? That could be avoided. That could be avoided if the hospitals, if they had a trained member of staff assessing these children as soon as they were born, because one can be born with a high narrow palate. One can have habits such as thumb sucking, etc., which will also impact the development of the jaws. If the child isn't able to breastfeed, so for example, um, breastfeeding is not just about nutrition, but it's also about manipulation of the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. If the child has a tongue tie, 
that will impact as well their ability to breastfeed. And this also stems back to, you know, the, the food that children are eating when they were growing up. You know, are they just eating pureed food? Everything is mushed. Whereas our ancestors were eating from a very young age, hard foods, gnawing, developing the jaws, tough meat, hard vegetables, etc., chewing, because it's the chewing muscles that are very important as well to help develop. So it's unfortunate, Cameron, because, you know, that's a paper there that was studied that was published nine years ago by one of the top sleep doctors in the world, Christian Gimlo. He's got 1,000 publications. He's passed on in 2019. But in the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing in children. And unfortunately, it's going to take 20 years. How many children are going to die in that instance? And I'm not here to scaremonger. All I'm saying is that this could be avoided. You know, it's really time for professions to start investigating this. And I suppose that it will start, it's not going to start with the professions. I don't think so, to be honest with you. I've been in this field for 20 years. And even with asthma, we could not get asthma societies to encourage their members to nasal breathe. Despite the physiological effects of breathing through the nose as conditioning and warming and moistening the incoming air, Nitric oxide, which is a gas that's produced in the nasal airway, was first identified in the human being in 1991. Nitric oxide is a bronchodilator. It's antiviral, antibacterial. It helps redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. Despite the normal physiology of the nose and the role it plays in terms of conditioning the incoming air as air is drawn into the lungs, no asthma society that I am aware of anywhere in the world has embraced nasal breathing. Why? We don't know. I really have more questions than answers with this. I have also more questions than answers that why there's a belief out there that's so pers- pervasive to take more air into your lungs. You know, and we looked at different videos on YouTube as well, because we work, of course, with a lot, lot of people with yoga. And I think yoga has such an enormous potential as a modality. There are millions of people practicing it every day. And if a yoga instructor was trained in the importance of nasal breathing, both in and out, but also understood about the biochemistry of breathing and had their students breathe less air to improve blood circulation, to improve oxygen delivery, to stimulate the vagus nerve, to reduce the body's sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup, to improve the breath toll time, the control pause or the boat score, that yoga instructor by bringing breathing exercises into their practice of yoga from three dimensions of breathing, and also by encouraging their students to breathe through the nose outside of the practice, to get breathing off the mat, breathing through the nose during sleep. And that can be done very safely. Like we use a tape called Myotape. Now, full disclosure, it's my own tape, but it's a tape that surrounds the mouth to bring the lips together. So taping of the mouth is a very normal thing that we've been doing for decades. And you can, with, with a tape that surrounds the mouth, there's no risk because if, it, if a, you know, a teenager or, or a child, say for once they're over a certain age it, or an adult, if they, if they need to open their mouth, they can. But what the tape is doing is just gently bringing the lips together. Can you imagine the impact of yoga? I, it could be unbelievable. People going into a yoga studio with asthma, it would help their asthma more so than what it's helping already. Anxiety, depression, stimulating the, the baroreflex, increasing the sensitivity of the baroreflex, more so than what it's doing already. And when we looked at YouTube videos of yoga instruction in breathing, 
seven out of 10 were encouraging their students to take big full breaths. And this could increase the risk of overbreathing. Now, if you have a student then inside in the yoga studio taking full big breaths, well, how is that student going to believe that they should be breathing outside of it? They are more likely to take full big breaths. And, you know, just we had yesterday or the day before, we have refresher meetings with our own instructors um, throughout the world. We do it by Zoom. And one of the instructors is based in Italy. And he, he's, work, he's working with a client. And I'll give you this example. The client practiced holotropic breathing, which involved hyperventilation. Now, he didn't do it with an instructor, so it's likely he didn't do it correctly. He did holotropic breathing for 60 minutes, only one session. And he developed a spasm in the face tick afterwards, which has been going on for five years. The acute hyperventilation for one hour put him into such a stress response, and obviously it's affected other aspects of it, that he has got, and he's only 26 years of age. And now what we're looking to do is, the instructor is working with him to help to normalize his breathing volume. And the breathe light exercise that we do, that simple exercise of taking a very light breath of air into the nose and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out, softening the speed of breathing and taking less air into the body, that exercise has given some relief from his spasms, his tics. Do I know what's going on? No, I don't. But I think it's because we're helping to engage or influence the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, I suppose people, we need to be careful about the information that's put out there about breathing. Breathing is very, very powerful. But while something is powerful, it can be a double-edged sword. It's very important to understand what breathing exercises are suitable for you. You know, when do you want to relax the body and mind using breathing? How should your everyday breathing pattern be? But also, if you want to stress the body and mind, what limits do you want to push your body and mind there because you can overdo it? It's like physical exercise. You can go for a walk or you can go for a sprint, but sprinting might be good for you, but it doesn't mean that you should be sprinting all day long. And with breathing, that's the case as well. Yeah, I, I sincerely agree with all of that. And I think before um, before I let you go, I'd love to just quickly touch on the fact that the nose is a use it or lose it organ, as James Nestor says. And as someone who used to be a chronic mouth breather, um, it's not going to happen overnight. And you do need to stick at it for a while breathing through your nose before your function comes back and um I think it's important maybe you can add a little bit to this not to give up on your nose if it's always stuffed or blocked. Uh, it will no, you come can back. free it up. Oh, yeah, no, no you, no, no, you can do it quicker than that. Um, if your nose is stuffy, you can decongest the nose. And this is known since 1923 simply by holding the breath. So anybody with a stuffy nose, because it's about 10% of the population that has a stuffy nose, to open up your nose, take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold the nose, and just nod your head up and down as you hold your breath and keep nodding your head up and down and keep going until you feel a relatively strong air hunger. Then let go, breathe in through your nose, wait about a minute with normal breathing, do it again, do it five or six times. Don't do it if you're pregnant. Don't do it if you've got serious medical conditions. Um, you know, but if you're feeling anxiety or panic, do it a little bit easier. So just don't push it to the point of a strong air hunger. But when you hold your breath, your nose opens up. 
And that's one of the benefits of this. You know, so when we can open up the nose and the person will feel it so much easier to breathe through their nose. And the more they breathe through the nose, the better the nose works. That's the way it is. The nose is a case of use it or lose it. And one of the best things is to get your mouth closed during sleep. But first establish that you can breathe through your nose during the day. If you can get your mouth closed during sleep, you will improve your sleep quality. And waking up feeling alert in the morning is a tremendous start to the day. Uh, what a great way to finish. I, I know you're very busy, so I, I will let you go. But um, I recommend everyone um, pick up a copy of The Breathing Cure. Um, I think it's probably uh, with that and James Nestor's breath, you'll probably know more than more than most people about the, the topic of breathing. But um, thank you so much for coming to speak with me. I really hope this can be something that people can listen to and, and learn how to, you know, really change their life through, through breathing. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Cameron. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you got a lot out of our conversation. I cannot encourage you enough to check out Patrick's new book, The Breathing Cure. This is possibly the most comprehensive look into utilizing breathing to achieve optimal health. If you'd like to keep up with my work, you can find me using at Richie Flow Nutrition on social media. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.